For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Today we are back with Dr. Bruce Alexander, who um, shared with us last week about the Rat Park experiments he was part of, um, which have been such a great resource and a lot of renewed interest in them recently, uh, as we better understand the role of what drives addiction, the role of disconnection, the role of um, trauma and um kind of being kicked to the curb, which is what our policies have been doing to people who have been using drugs and are addicted. And so we're trying to change that on a policy standpoint. But even when we end these policy harms of drug prohibition, we still are going to have to deal with addiction and not just addiction to drugs, but really addiction to all sorts of things. Drugs are one of the ways that people um, use to uh, feel differently than they currently do in their life without any kind of um, ingestion of something or, or an activity. So uh, we want to delve into that with Dr. Alexander, who spent a lot of his career trying to understand addiction, uh, not just the role of the war on drugs on it, but um, how do we combat addiction um, even when we end the drug war? And even while we're working to end the drug war, we need to be dealing with some of those deeper drivers. So Dr. Alexander is a retired professor of psychology from Vancouver, Canada. He has a Ph.D., in psychology from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, He's been fascinated with addiction since he has um, been in Vancouver for 50 years. Vancouver has the highest concentration of addicted people in Canada. They also have one of the most forward-thinking, life-improving, life-upholding approaches to addiction now. Um, And he has studied addiction through all that time, through experimental research and clinical counseling and interviewing and all sorts of other things. Um, and it's continuing even through his retirement. So, Dr. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina. And one of the things in one of your um, writings called Treatment for Addiction, Why Aren't We Doing Better, that I read recently, um, was this kind of bigger question of why are we so addicted to so many different things? One of the statistics in that paper is that 47% of Americans are harmfully addicted to something during a 12-month period. So almost half the people in America have some sort of harmful addiction. That's not necessarily an addiction to a substance. It could be addiction to you know all sorts of other things, gambling and pornography and shopping and uh, kinds of things that all can destroy people's lives. Um, so what are some of the myths that you think we are still believing about addiction and why aren't we doing better? And in fact, we're doing worse as time goes on that more people are finding um, addictions to cope with their lives. Well, <clears throat> the first myth is the one you've already covered, but I, I want to uh, take another kick at it, too. And the first myth is that addiction is um it's a drug disease, right? It's caused by drugs. And people say, well, sure, there's addiction to gambling too, but listen, never mind. People are dying of overdoses to drugs, and that's the addiction which matters. Well, wrong. I think we have to, we have to fall back on our research here. We say, what are people dying of? Well, 
you know, a lot of people are dying of suicide. Mm. And a lot of that suicide can be traced directly to addiction. For example, gambling addiction. People, you know, they lose, they lose everything and then they kill themselves. Um, and a lot of a lot of kids are are essentially losing their lives to um, video or social media mm-hmm. or computer addictions of various sorts. These are not small things. You can say, well, they're not dying of overdose, so it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, it matters. If if they're your child or if you're your grandchild, you know how much it matters because they're they're just giving up their lives. So so the first and biggest myth and most important myth is that addiction is a drug problem. We have to look beyond that or we'll never understand it. Because if it's a drug problem, then we have to look at the you know, the way drugs interact with the brain and so forth and so on. Well, uh, no, that won't get you there because that's because actually, literally, statistically, in the United States and, and in Canada too, the larger number of serious life-threatening addictions are not drug addictions. Okay, so that's myth number one. Myth number two is the is the old devil drug myth the, that that either the drug or the smartphone or the gambling machine has demonic power, which takes away people's willpower and, and destroys them. Well, again, wrong. It's a myth. All those things, including fentanyl, including the, the most demonic gambling machines, including the most demonic forms of social media, are used by most people quite safely. And often, you know, they're used in a, in a way which is not harmful at all. The problem is that there's a, there's a growing number of people who can't use these kinds of things safely, that, that they, you know, they, they, they give themselves to them. And if, and if you ask those people, what's happened? Is your, what took your willpower away? Well, sometimes, especially if they're talking to a judge or, or their dad, they'll say, yeah, my willpower was taken away. I had no control. But if you talk to them quietly, like, like a psychologist can, or like a grandma can, or a grandpa can, they'll say, well, you know why I'm doing that? And, and the answer is, you know, I just don't have anything better to do. And this gives me something. So, so and, you know, this is what I do. I am a psychologist and a grandpa. Um, and, I, and I talk to people, and, 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 and they tell me why they do these things, and they can explain it perfectly well. It's, you know, they got really nothing for a life. And, and well, okay, so if they, if they smoke marijuana and um, watch pornography all the time, most of the time, I guess you can't do that all the time. If you do that, well, why are you doing it? It's because you've got nothing else to do, and that gives you something. Or you can take heroin, and you can be part of the, the junkie group. You know, you can hang out with the guys on the corner and talk about how tough you are because you're, you're risking your life taking these devil drugs. Or you can be part of a gambler group and, you know, hang, around, hang out with the guys who are risking thousands of dollars and, and eventually losing it. But taking these, you know, really, truly heroic risks and sometimes winning for a, little, for a while. And, and, and these kinds of excitement, these kinds of exec, um, addictive excitement, well, 
I mean, I don't want to live that way. And, and most of your listeners, I think, don't want to live that way. But what if you got nothing else? What if you've really got nothing to live for? Addictive excitement or addictive fulfillment is is something. And that's why, the, you know, my book, the subtitle of my book, as you have mentioned earlier, is Addiction, a Study in Poverty of the Spirit. That means, you know, Jesus talked about the poor in spirit. Well, the poor in spirit is us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah, it's us, and and a lot of people don't have much to fulfill their spirit with these days, and a lot of people didn't in in biblical times either, and they turn to these things. Uh, in in you know in the, in the Bible we would we would talk about it in terms of you know being possessed by a demon or a devil or something like that. But today we talk about it in terms of addiction. Well, this is not a new problem, but it is a problem which is particularly widespread right now. I loved what you said about, um, you know, when what people tell to the people they're supposed to talk to versus what they'll tell, you know, to a psychologist or a counselor or, um, you know, last year a mom called me and she said, you know, she's talking about her daughter's heroin addiction and said, you know, my daughter had no has no, nothing to drive her addiction. She had a wonderful life, and she doesn't have any any reason to be doing that. Um, and the more people that I've talked to, the more I think maybe going back to what you said in the the last episode of, you know, it's it's very difficult uh, as a parent, as even just a family member of somebody struggling with addiction, to be able to. To, to sit with the fact that their their experience of their own life may not be your experience of their life. What you think is going on in their mind and in their life may be very different from what is really happening in their own mind or their own life or the way that they perceive their life and their uh, value. And certainly, you know, therapists have told that to me, you know, as well, that, you know, what how people experience their life and their value and their purpose um all of us have different experiences. You know, kids all raised in the same home are going to have different experiences of the way that their parents interacted with them. You know, some of them may have felt very hurt by their parents' interactions, their personality or whatever is geared that way. And some of them may have felt like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, what are you talking about? You know, it, we had a we had a great childhood. I never thought anything's, you know, second about it. Um, that we ha- we just have to allow for the humanity of people that we're all different that we all experience things in different ways we all find meaning and and value in different things and that we can't discount people's experiences just because they don't happen to be our own or what we think they should have you know if we think we know what their life and and how they should feel about their life is there's just so many factors in that that feels so dehumanizing to say to people you um, you know, I know your life and your feelings and you don't have any reason to be, to be using that. Has that been your experience as you've worked with so many people over, uh, your career in trying to understand the deeper drivers? Yes, that's my experience exactly. But I, I want to add two things to it. Um, <clears throat> the first is many parents are terrified because, you know, if they dig into why exactly it is that their son or daughter is doing whatever they're doing, 
it's going to come back on them. And of course they're terrified because they love this child. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and the very thought that they might have contributed to the problem is absolutely unbearable. I mean, I'm a parent. I know this. And, and I'm a grandparent too. And I know it twice. Uh, it's unbearable thought. So we, we cannot be harsh on people who don't want to know everything because they're so afraid of what they might find out. But the second thing I want to say about parents is we, we, we must be hesitant about putting the blame on parents because really parents are often not the, the crucial problem. Quite often people have a, you know, they have a, a life which is uh, empty and, and poverty of the spirit is a good word for it. But it's not because of their parents. The parents are doing fine. Um, it's quite often, for example, people become isolated in school and bullied and cast out by society for for reasons which have nothing to do with with how good a person they are or how worthy they are or how deserving they are, but just because it's, you know, it's that kind of a world. People have to bear the burden of an awful lot of rejection and failure and stuff, often having nothing to do with their parents. So we shouldn't just presume the parents are at fault. On the other hand, the parents make that same mistake. They tend to presume it's their fault, so they don't want to know because hmm. um, they're afraid that it might be their fault. And it might be partly, but it might not be at all. It might be something quite different. So I think we have to be way more open when we when we talk to people. And, and, and you're right. You say this is my experience because I've talked to so many people. What is? I've, I've talked to a very large number of people about this, and, I, and I've learned – Best, the best solution, the best kind of talking is not talking. It's listening, and and just let people tell you. They'll they'll tell you the truth. They want to. People are dying to tell the truth. As long as you're not threatening them, they they want to tell because it hurts. Hmm. So, what do you see through your research as ways that we can help combat this poverty of the spirit? What are you hopeful for? Uh, what do you hope to see uh, to grow, to combat this um, growing disconnection and loss of meaning and, and value um, in people's lives? And it's, you know, culture-wide. It's in and out of all kinds of backgrounds and political affiliations, religious affiliations. We as a people are dying under this disconnection and loss of um of, of living in ways that, that we find meaningful and that help us to be fully present in our lives. What do you see as ways that we can combat this? Well, I wish I could give you the, a better answer for that than I can, but I can give you a partial answer. I, I can tell you one of the things which happened in Vancouver, which, which made life different, and, and I think it's part of the reason why we were able to get over our war on drugs here faster than other, other places were. And, and the reason, well, so this is just one example. And, and then I want to talk about other possible examples. But I, I'll tell you this one first. When, when we got into the war on drugs here, it was in the 19, early 20th century, let's say, and it got it. It hit its worst peak in the, about the 1920s, and and we were we were brutal. We were as brutal as any place 
in North America in terms of the way we treated addicts. We filled up our prisons. We had uh, judicial whipping for, for people who use drugs. Um, we had judicial deportation. The reason we had deportation is that a lot of our, our drug problem, uh, a lot of our response to our drug problem um, was because of the Chinese population. We had, a, we had a very large Chinese population, which came in specifically to Vancouver, where I live, uh, to build a railway at the end of the 19th century. And then the railway got built, and those people were left over. We had a huge Chinese population, um, and, and they were taking jobs because the reason they got, got called in to build the railway is they would work harder and more dangerous jobs than anyone else and ask for less money. And so they were, they were a threat to, the, to working people in, in Vancouver. Um, and, and they used opium. In other words, the, the predecessor of, of heroin, they used the, the drug called opium, uh, which is the original Chinese form of it. And so, so our, our prosecution of the drug war was largely directed at suppressing the Chinese. And we got over that because gradually the, the, you know, the, the two groups inter intermingled so if you come to vancouver now you'll see a city which is white and chinese and and everybody gets along pretty well like real well and 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 it was the that social change reduced the 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 you see the the, the previous suppression of the chinese people was hard on chinese people making them more likely to be addicted and it was hard on white people because it made them more likely to be stupid because they had to they had to, you know, make up reasons for, for, hmm. you, you get it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's harming yeah. both sides. You're saying it's. So we got past that problem pretty well here. Like we, we just don't have that problem anymore. And we, we have, you know, that's, that's helped. We don't have to have a war on drugs anymore. Now that isn't the only possible problem. That just happens to be our problem in Vancouver. But there are other other problems. Like I think when I think of the, of the United States, I think of the superpower problem. Like the United States is trapped into being a country with the largest military in the entire planet. You know, as you know, larger than the next ten countries put together. Um, it is constantly fighting wars, um, and those wars are producing PTSD. You know post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. syndrome and and those wars are 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 making people stupid because because you have to in order to be fighting wars all the time you have to believe a lot of lies about the people you're fighting wars against so that so that you can keep fighting them even even though there's no really good reason for fighting them this is a problem of all superpowers i, I don't mean to sound like i'm anti-american because i'm not in the least um but all superpowers have big addiction problems, and all superpowers are inclined to, to have wars on drugs. When I say mm -hmm. all superpowers, I mean Russia, China, and the United States. Um, and if I, could, if I could wave a magic wand over the United States, over, and especially over the state of Mississippi, to try to do something about, about drug um, 
the drug problem and the fact that, that, that you guys seem to be partially stuck in a drug war, what I, what I would do is, is, is just somehow magically solve that superpower problem. I'd say, okay, why don't you just guys go back to being a regular country like the other countries and who are not trying to dominate the world and not, you know, constantly, you know, living in fear that, that the other superpowers will dominate the world. Um, that, that would be my prescription. Now that's, you know, again, that's just an example. Hmm. I don't mean to say that that's the whole problem. Right. But, but that's a problem which, which strikes me, you know, because we're, we're, I'm talking to an American audience here, and uh, that strikes me as particularly relevant to the United States. But my main point here is that, is that we're in a unique period in history. We are in a period where we've got to deal with social problems that people never had before. We never had a world population of 8 billion people before. And we never had, you know, wars that never ended for 25 years. Uh, you know, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to deal with that. And we never had a, pop, a situation where um, we were so much under control of, of large corporations. These kinds of problems, they seem like political problems. And they are, of course, they are political problems. But, but they are the problems which sucks the juices out of us these are these are the problems which make it necessary to use phrases like poverty of the spirit because we're living in it seems like we're living in great times and we are you know we've got more cell phones than ever anyone ever had Mm. on the other hand we've got problems that nobody ever had before either and we've got to confront those problems of the reality of the 21st century in a way that seems to have nothing to do with drug addiction or any other kind of addiction, but really has everything to do with them. Because, because it's those problems that make us depressed, suicidal, and addicted. That's what I believe. That's one of my hopes that people begin to think about when they think of any behavior or any ingestion of substances or whatever that is becoming problematic in somebody's life is not to focus on the behavior or the substance, but to ask why. Why are they using that? Yeah. Why is that becoming a problem? Because uh, like you said, the vast majority of people with all behaviors and all substances are not harmed by using them. They don't become addicted to those things. And yet some people do. It's not the behavior and it's not the substance that's driving those people. It's other things that have made them more susceptible to using that problematically to try to fill, you know, um, other voids. I have a, you know, a friend who says, who's in recovery and says, you know, drugs are not the problem. Drugs are the solution. They're a bad solution to whatever the problem yeah. really is, but they are the solution for that person. And for a while they tend to, you know, work well. And then for some people, you know, they become incredibly problematic. So so where do you see one of the most interesting things in this paper of yours that I read is kind of your thinking on treatment and how we approach treatment, um, how we, you know, force people into treatment versus uh, versus not. And some of the points that you make are that no treatment works for most of the people who undertake it and that more recoveries happen without treatment than with treatment speaking, you know, so help us understand that. Cause I think that is radical to most people who think in order for somebody to stop their drug addiction, they have to go to treatment. Um, and what you're saying is that m- 
most of the people who recover don't recover because of treatment, although treatment certainly helps some people recover. Um, help us understand, how do, you, how do you see the role of treatment versus, versus not? What, what, is, what role does it play? Well, treatment is, is a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm in treatment. I'm a psychologist. I do treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we, we got past the war on drugs here in Vancouver years ago. We got past it because some policemen were able to stand up and say, look, we cannot arrest our way out of our drug problem or our addiction problem. And I think right now that those of us who are in treatment need to stand up and say, no, we cannot treat our way out of our addiction problem either. We can help some people, and we do, um, but most of the people we try to help, we don't help. And the paradox is, as you pointed out so so clearly, I mean, you're doing my work for me, and I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) You point out so clearly, most people who become seriously addicted don't get the treatment because they get over it by themselves. And how do they get over it? Well, that's, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a farm down the road here where I live on this island, Pender Island, and the people in the farm are, are Christian people, and they, they take in um, drug addicts from a treatment center on the United States. Uh, uh, sorry, on the United States. It's, it's in uh, Vancouver, they take in people from this treatment center, and they um, give them work in the, on the farm, and they they have they have lunch with the family. They only take in two or three people at a time, and some of those people recover. Now, are they getting treatment? No, they're just getting work. Um, but they're doing. But this family is doing that on purpose because they want to help people, and they want to you know give them a chance to. To, to formulate a way of life which is way more healthy than the one they had in the city where, where they you know just went crazy and, and, and got addicted. So a lot of the recovery which happens happens outside of treatment. In fact, as you pointed out, more recovery happens outside treatment than happens in treatment. This is not an attack on treatment. I, I, I believe in treatment and I do it. And it, it often works. But it's not... You know, it's not the end-all solution. The end-all solution is has to do with this phrase, poverty of the spirit. I mean, how do we give people a kind of a spirit that enables them to face the world? Well, it has something to do with churches, and it has something to do with with communities, and it has it has something to do with with families. It has to do with you know understanding, I guess, more than anything else. It has to do with treating people with the kind of dignity which which enables them to have a place, have a meaning, and have a uh, center in the world. And, and where we can do that, it works. People get over. People get over addictions. They also get over being depressed. They get over being anxious. They get over being suicidal. They get over being apathetic. Um, but it's not easy. But but this is this is the job you see that that society has always had. The magic of society, when it works, is to give people a place where they belong, or where life makes sense to them, and where they have something to believe in. And then problems like addiction tend to take care of themselves. How we're going to do that in the twenty first century? 
Well, nobody knows for sure. It's it's pretty sure we're not going to find it on Facebook. Um, and it's pretty sure we're not going to find it in Costco. Um, how are we going to find it? Well, we don't know yet. Um, a lot of people are saying what I'm saying. I mean, it is, this is not just Bruce Alexander speaking. There are lots of thinking people who are thinking along these lines and trying to find solutions locally. And and some people, like the, the farmer down the road, are doing it. They're finding solutions. And, and we can find solutions. I think it's there. I think it's in our ability to be social and to be local and to be compassionate that the solution will lie and and but there's no formula it almost sounds like maybe we think about treatment in too narrow of a way that the farmer down the road is providing a kind of treatment and for some of the people that they interact with that's the kind of treatment that they need they need employment or they need you know someone who's who's humanizing them by having them over for a meal and, and talking to them and helping them to feel yeah. the value that, that they have, that maybe treatment doesn't only come in, in kind of the way that we've understood it in, you know, inpatient treatment or specifically, you know, with a counselor, but that there are so many ways, uh, which I think is beautiful because it opens the door for any person to be involved in treatment in, in creating the kind of community that people can find a place and, and see their value and uh, have a place to belong and to contribute uh, and be part of. That was going to be my last uh, question for you is kind of what can, what can individual people do? And it sounds like you have, um, have answered that in a lot of ways is, is we can all reach out and we can pr- put ourselves out there to be part of a connective, um, healthy community that we can invite other people into um, to be part of. I think for me as a Christian, that is certainly the, the call of Scripture for Christians to live in that kind of community and to, to call other people, to create space for lots of people, whether they are Christians or not, to, to belong and to be part of the kind of um, uh, community that we want that shows people their value and their worth and helps them to live out of that value and worth. Yeah, I, you've said that beautifully, and I, I, I wouldn't add anything to it except I would, I'd quibble a little bit about the word treatment because treatment is a is a one way word. Like you, you treat a hide, you know, you you, you treat it with chemicals or, it, you know, you treat things. It's it's a one way process. I think the process of of recovery and of finding the fulfillment which protects us against addiction is not a one way process. It's a two way process. It's it's not only are we reaching out, but we're responding when people reach out to us. It's mm. it's uh, and we're listening to what they're telling us about what's wrong. And so it's I, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just yeah. I'm just, no, I love that. I I, I love that. that. That's such a great point to, to combat the I, Messiah complex of let me fix your life. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's the two wayness of the process, which I think is somehow essential. That's fantastic. You can access Dr. Alexander's work at brucealexander.com, or you can Google Bruce Alexander Addiction and find him that way as well. Uh, His newest book on addiction is called The Globalization of Addiction, A Study in Poverty of the Spirit, which is what we've been talking about today. We're so thankful for him taking the time um, to share with us. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Alexander. Thank you, Christina and Mike. 
and end it for good. Um, hopes that you are finding value in these podcasts. We want to continue to bring you um, people like Dr. Alexander and their research and their thoughts um, to help us develop more nuanced approaches to how we think about not just the war on drugs, um, which is what end it for good is specifically trying to end, but we're trying to end that because of its major driver in addiction. What we want is for more people to live lives that they want to be fully present for, where they can be contributing, where they can be parenting and have loving relationships with their families and find meaningful work. And we want people to thrive. And that's why we're working on the war on drugs. Um, we're so thankful for Dr. Alexander's um, sharing of his expertise. And we hope that you'll join us as we try to save lives and improve life for all of us. And we hope that you'll share what you're learning and what you're enjoying um, of the work of End It For Good so we can invite more people um, to journey with us and to consider whether or not we can make changes and create um, a world that is better for us and for our children. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.